Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books and Popular Culture podcast. I'm Professor Matt Sinkowitz of Boston College, host of the channel. Uh, just a little housekeeping before we begin. If you'd like to give feedback on the podcast or suggest a book for us to discuss, please send me a tweet to at Media Studied. Uh, that's in the past tense. Uh, also, we're on iTunes, so subscribing, rating, and reviewing are all appreciated. This week's episode is somewhat unusual, as the topic of discussion is Baseball Prospectus's 2014 Annual, a yearbook of sorts that both previews the upcoming baseball season and provides readers a look into the state of the art in baseball analysis, both in terms of advanced statistical metrics and increasingly subjective player scouting. Though the book is not a traditional work of scholarship, it offers many of the virtues that one hopes to find in the best academic projects. It questions our assumptions, showing that what we think leads to success on the diamond often does not. It builds on previous insights, positioning itself in the tradition begun by the legendary Bill James's baseball abstracts from the 1980s. And, perhaps most importantly, the book has shown itself to be increasingly willing to be self-critical, evolving in its methodology as new evidence and ideas come to light. It is also, of course, a lot of fun to read. Uh, the book is available right now from Wiley General Trade, uh, and I'm very happy to be joined this evening by Sam Miller and Jason Wojciechowski, uh, the editors of the book. Welcome, Sam and Jason. Thanks. Howdy. Hi. Uh, did I get your name right, Jason? That was the best I've ever heard it, actually. Well, I, you're, you're a better I man. almost fell out of my chair. <laughs> you're, you're a better man than, than me. Uh, my, my, my name should be Shankievich, but uh, as you heard me in the introduction, I, uh, I bail out on that most times. Uh, <laughs> before we uh, before we get get started about the actual content of this year's annual, uh, I was hoping you guys could both uh, introduce your little yourself a little bit by telling us what brought you to baseball analysis and baseball prospectus in in specific. Uh, well, um, Jason should probably go first because Jason uh, predates me in baseball analysis. Um, he was doing this. Uh, many years before I was into it. So, uh, in fact, he was part of what got me interested in it. So why don't you start, Jason? Uh, so, so, so baseball prospectus is actually what brought me to baseball analysis. I was, I was in college. I was a college, I don't know, first or second year and, um, somehow found a link to baseball prospectus. This is actually when the site was free, uh, entirely. It was, it was more or less a blog collective more than anything else. Um, and I just, I started reading it. I started reading the annuals and I completely fell into it, um, wholeheartedly, I guess. I, I hadn't really had exposure to the stats and stuff in the past, but I was a giant, was, haha, I, w- I am a giant nerd, um, and have always been. So it kind of appealed to me and, you know, at some point started a blog and, and, you know, did all the things that one is required to do, um, as a baseball nerd in the early two thousands. Um, but yeah, so it was actually baseball prospectus that brought me to that, uh, baseball prospectus itself that brought me to that kind of way of thinking. To, uh, to give us a little context, what was the, the thing that baseball prospectus was offering back then that nobody else was? Um, I think it was, uh, 
just a, just a willingness to question. Um, I mean, at the time, I think there was a lot of talk about like the book, um, you know, man- managers' books and managers' ways of doing things and general managers' ways of doing things and media analysis of, of things. And, you know, a, every other column would sort of denigrate the RBI. Um, and, and, you know, Baseball Prospectus and, and Rob Nyer, uh, who at that time was at ESPN, were kind of the two, my two touchstones um, on that. And in fact, it may have been a Rob Nyer linked to, to Baseball Prospectus that, that got me there now that I think about it. Um, but it, it was just, uh, I think you kind of mentioned it in the intro, kind of a, you know, a, a willingness to, to question um, where the mainstream was going uh, with, with sort of baseball thinking. Mm. And how about you, Sam? Uh, yeah, I also was a big baseball nerd growing up, and in a lot of ways, my identity as a child was being the kid who was really smart about baseball and could therefore talk to adults uh, at you know his dad's various work functions. So I, I got a lot of kind of sense of personal value from knowing about baseball. And uh, so around the time of Moneyball, uh, I, I don't remember exactly how I was exposed to the movement, to what was, you know, kind of at the time was sort of an ideological movement. I got very excited by it, uh, and basically by the promise that um, that if you follow this stuff, you are smarter than everybody else. That appealed to me as a, you know, as a uh, as a kid who was either just coming out of college or or just starting at work. Uh, I liked the idea that there was a group of people who were um, who were smarter than the pros, and um, I also liked the. Uh, the tone, which at the time was much sharper, uh, much meaner, I would say. It was a mean tone. And I was a young kid, and I liked meanness at the time. <laughs> I, I grew to be much more moderate, as um, I think almost all baseball analysis has grown to be moderate. Um, but at the time, I think it was a tone that fit the time and that fit um, a lot of us early readers. And from that point on, it, it was mainly just being a reader for a long time. I was a journalist. I was writing about uh, you know, a, a variety of news beats and transitioned into sports kind of accidentally about five years ago and tradition to baseball prospectus kind of accidentally about two years ago. Mm. Uh, you mentioned Moneyball, which I think is a, use, a useful uh, touchstone for listeners to this podcast because, uh, of course, it's not baseball-specific, uh, and uh, that's a, a text they're probably familiar with. Uh, could you uh, describe sort of the relationship between baseball perspectives and the Moneyball uh, perspective? Uh, I think sometimes maybe it's it's a little misunderstood. Could you, uh, you know, connect those two things for us? Um, well... <laughs> I don't know. The, the, it depends if you look at Moneyball as a uh, snapshot of the moment frozen in time, or if you look at it more as kind of like Moneyball as the general term that has been used ever since to describe a sort of certain approach to the game. Um, Moneyball at the time to describe the A's um, was you know, relatively narrow. It described a way of taking advantage of market inefficiencies, but it was you know, specific to what the A's were doing and what their front office was doing. But uh, in a much larger way, um, baseball prospectus has has kind of, uh, I, I want to say embraced that kind of mentality, except it actually predates it. Moneyball was a lot about borrowing from what was being written at baseball prospectus. And basically, the idea is very simple. It, it's, it's broad and it can be applied in almost any era and for almost any team. It's just basically trying to get a dollar ten when you spend a buck. Um, and whatever you have to do to, to get that is um, is 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 going to be qualified under Moneyball. 
So, um, you know, it's not, it's not just about on base percentage. It's not about slagging scouts, uh, or anything like that. Um, though it's sometimes interpreted that way. Um, it's really just being, uh, you know, a year ahead of the competition and maybe 10 years ahead of the public's conventional wisdom. Hmm. Let's talk a little bit about this year's book. Um, in the preface of the book, you, you go through a really uh, brief but really interesting exercise uh, where you look back through the comments that were written about the New York Yankees relief pitcher Mariano Rivera, uh, starting with 1996, uh, which was the first uh, baseball prospectus annual, uh, and all the way through to this year, uh, which uh, will be his last as he's retired. Uh, and in general, I think this year's book seems to display, I would, I would say, an, an extra touch of self-awareness. Uh, can you tell me what you learned, what, what insights you've, you've gotten from looking back through the archives, seeing the evolution of baseball prospectus and sort of where it is today? Uh, yeah, I think that one thing that, well, you know, one of the criticisms of, of analysts and of baseball prospectus specifically um, was that uh, we were too close-minded about certain elements of the game, certain, um, certain ways of gathering information. And one of those was, was certainly scouting. And one of them was sort of figuring out how to incorporate subjective data because subjective data, um, is not worthless. It needs to be taken differently than objective data. Um, but it's extremely useful. And, um, you know, there's sort of a, a, a common refrain, uh, sometimes that, uh, the, uh, that the plural of anecdote is not data, but in fact, in a lot of ways, it is. That data is a, a series of data points uh, and anecdotes. You know, for any doctor who's ever asked you, you know, how you feel when you, uh, you know, when you, when you eat this or when you go outside or whatever, they're basically collecting anecdotes. And so we were being close-minded about that. And so one of the things that's interesting to read is that um, there was a very critical tone in the writing at the time uh, that said that baseball was closed-minded and baseball was ignoring this data and baseball wouldn't listen to everybody who was smart. And I think that there's been an acknowledgement um, by pretty much everybody since then that, um, you know, we were, we, I, I wasn't there at the time, but I would have been, uh, we would have been flawed in some of the same ways, that we weren't really embracing a lot of baseball's intelligence and wisdom and tradition in the right way. So, you go back and you read those comments, and, and in a lot of ways, they're, they're very fun uh, because they are, they are 100%. They are completely committed uh, to, their, to their opinions, and it's fun to read strong opinions. Um, they're also fun because some of them were incredibly wrong, uh, and it's fun to read things 15 years later that somebody just got wildly wrong. Um, so I think that what you see in... Uh, the years since then, is you see a, a somewhat of a humbling effect as everybody became more aware that you're going to get a lot of stuff wrong, and so you don't you don't blast people quite as much, knowing that you're going to be blasted if you kind of uh, embrace that tone. Um, and I I think what 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 we hope has happened is that there was a a moderating a, a moderating effect in the end of the last decade, the beginning of this one, and now we're I think all sort of finding this voice that is lively and vibrant um, in a um, uh, in a way that's more respectful, more inclusive, um, but just as sharp as ever. 
Do you have any specific examples of, of these things that are sort of uh, wonderfully wrong now that when you look back uh, sort of promote that humbling effect? Yeah, well, you can pretty much if any any player who's played for long enough will have you know fifteen comments, and there's going to be at least one in those fifteen that's horribly wrong. But uh, with Rivera in particular, there was a, a I would say about a three or four year window where I don't remember this because this predates my involvement in baseball analytics, but th- there seems to have been something like a consensus that Mariano Rivera was on the brink of collapse. And this was when he was like 28, 29. This was like his third and fourth seasons of his career. And so there are these comments that are like a lot of troubling signs here, not, you know, and, um, uh, I don't know. I don't know what the correct process would have been. There were probably troubling signs about Rivera at the time. Um, you know, there, there, that's part of what makes Rivera magical is that he seems to defy conventional baseball strategy he has one pitch he's not a hyped uh top prospect with a 99 mile an hour fastball he did things differently it was it was unforeseeable um and yet it is also very amusing uh to uh to read those and and know that they're describing the downfall of a guy who would be the greatest of all time at at his particular role Right, yeah, and for those who who don't uh, who aren't familiar with Mariano Rivera, um, very famously he had one pitch, and he uh, went uh, with a twenty year career, give or take, uh, without ever really slowing down. You, it almost give, it looks as though he he would he would still be uh, at the top of his game if he hadn't retired. Uh, now, Jason, you said that you were sort of following this stuff from the very beginning, uh, and you guys mentioned in the in the preface use use the term culture war uh, that there was a culture war period. Uh, I presume you mean between sort of the baseball establishment and these outsiders at baseball prospectus. Um, do you remember it as a culture war, Jason, when you were first kind of logging on and, and seeing this? Was it was it part of your experience as being in that kind of a, a battle? Yeah, I, I absolutely do. Um, I was not, uh, you know, even when I started writing, I was not um, read widely enough to be really part of the culture war, but I still felt like I was reading, um, you know, the, the the people that I thought were right. Um, and, and it did feel like a culture war because, I mean, you still see it a little bit. You see the uh, certain um, writers who haven't left behind the old ideas and, and who still think that, um, you know, that name-calling of <laughs> and related um, tactics of outlets like Baseball Prospectus is where they want to be. But there was more of that then. Um, and I, there was a lot of, I don't know, criticism on both sides of the other side. You know, the front offices, the, the actual teams themselves, I think, um, mainly – stayed out of it, not not even consciously necessarily, but because when would they have an opportunity to address it? It's not like the writers who interviewed them, uh, interviewed you know general managers and managers every day were asking the questions that we were asking because they weren't us. Um, and these days, they many of them are us. Um, so they are approaching those questions differently. But um, no, at the time, it, it certainly felt like uh, a battle and it felt, you know, in retrospect, it's like, why did we care so much? Um, but you know, there, there was a sort of power in, in kind of, 
it, it almost like knowing we were right because we had data and and every time that the other side argued against that data they didn't have data of their own um and so you know but they had 80 years of tradition so that that was that was that was essentially the two sides and of course um the side arguing from tradition feels like that's you know, it kind of goes down along the levels. It's not just at the level of whether bunting is good. It's but it's the level of of how you should analyze whether bunting is good and whether you should kind of defer to authority. Um, should you listen to baseball's managers when they say that bunting is is necessary? And you know, quote unquote, our side did not did not think that we should, um, and their side did. And you know, you could go down among sort of various levels of of the fight, but it always felt like certainly a, a fight, not just um, we'll talk about our things and you'll talk about your things. And as silly, as silly as it kind of looks in retrospect, the, there is, I mean, there is an element of that that gave all of this energy and that led to a lot of really great writing and that led to a lot of really great research and a lot led to a lot of us starting blogs that we probably never would have started. I mean, the, the, there's a, a, a blog called Fire Joe Morgan that was very seminal about this. And, and basically, Fire Joe Morgan would take terrible uh, sports writing by traditional sports writers and just tear it to shreds and break it down in a very funny way. And um, it's it was just a humor site. It wasn't nothing more than a humor site. And e- I think even they sort of acknowledged that in retrospect – there's like this weird ambivalence because of how kind of mean they were to old men who were just doing their job. <laughs> and yet like there are actual baseball players who are into sabermetrics now and who talk about how it was fire Joe Morgan that got them into it. So there's this weird way that like, we're both sort of embarrassed of having lived through that era and also like sort of nostalgic about it. It led to a lot of really good things. Hmm. And there does seem to be, or at least you, you could make an argument, I'm not sure if you guys would, uh, but that there's more at stake here than just a discussion of baseball. Um, you know, you describe uh, the received wisdom about when it's good to bunt or, or not and versus the, what the data says. And, you know, uh, you know, assuming the goal is to win the game, uh, there is sort of a received tradition as to the best way to accomplish that. And then there's a data-driven one. Uh, and really what you're doing is is fighting superstition, right? You're, you're, you're making an argument that uh, where data is available it ought to be used uh do you consider yourselves uh do you think about the non or beyond baseball applications of what you do or or do you guys just write about baseball and that's where it stops yeah go ahead, Jason. The, the, these days it's kind of hard not to think um about uh you know the larger applications because of where nate silver has gone mm-hmm. um you know no nate silver made his name at baseball prospectus and made his name with um uh, a projection system that that sort of uh, helps project players uh, what what players are going to uh, do in the upcoming season um, and and also made his name as an astoundingly good writer um, given his data skills it's kind of unfair um, that he has both of those skills um, but you know then he goes on to do what kind of everybody knows Nate Silver does now um, in electoral politics and you know who knows where he's going to go with his new venture um, so so it's hard not to see um, that you know Nate as kind of a um, a microcosm of of the larger push um, toward 
data, 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 data. And, you know, the, the Obama campaign in 2008, I think, was sort of uh, well-known for um, just wanting data, 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 rather than the kind of received wisdom of politics. It, it's a, I, I, it strikes me as a very similar um, dynamic. But, you know, I'm not involved in politics. I don't really know people who do it, so I don't know if that's right. But from the outside, it looks similar. Yeah, I tend to use baseball as pretty much the metaphor to go to for almost anything I'm trying to explain to somebody. I mean, I, I look at most of the world through a baseball metaphor. So uh, there's some there's some going outward. I think that uh, one of the things that um, that actually came of, of my exposure to this was a ability to be suspicious of the data itself, because there is a way that um, that you know that science is presented that you know that people will uh, present their argument using the the sort of sheen of data and analysis and one of the things that Nate Silver was so good at and one of the things that Colin Wires who uh, followed Nate Silver as our director of statistics at Baseball Prospectus and who's now working for a, a big league club uh, was so good at was showing that um, that. Uh, a bad argument is a bad argument, and there are people on both sides who have bad arguments, who decide what they want to believe and then find uh, the bad argument to support it. And just because the bad argument is numbers doesn't mean it's any more convincing. And so uh, I find myself a lot um, – I think I find myself a lot more uh, skeptical of um, the sort of data-driven things that might have uh, easily swayed me maybe five or ten years ago. Hmm. Uh, now, you mentioned uh, individuals who wrote for Baseball Prospectus, former editors who are now working in the game. Uh, so that would seem to indicate, and, and I think uh, you mentioned this uh, in the preface, that the culture war is, of course, over. And, and part of the way you can you can tell that is that uh, there's an intermingling of these two sides. Uh, it's harder to sort them out now who the, who the old guard and the new guard are, as they're both often employed in the same offices. Uh, what did lead to the end of this culture war? What, what brought things uh, to the, the current place that they are? I think the short answer is we won. <laughs> uh, I mean that that's the that's the kind of snarky answer. But um, you know when when twenty eight or twenty nine major league front offices um, employ you know multiple uh, people whose job is to kind of crunch the data and and you know uh, Colin Wires who Sam mentioned his job title is mathematical modeler. Um, and imagining somebody, uh, a major league team, publicly saying that they hired someone whose job title is a mathematical modeler 15 years ago, it, it's just, you know, beyond. There, there were people. Uh, Craig Wright is kind of a, a precursor um, to a lot, of, a lot of what's going on now. Um, unfortunately, not as well known as Bill James, but um, very important and, and, and did consulting work for major league front offices in, I don't know, the 80s. Um, um, the late '80s, maybe, and um, but you know, would, there weren't stories written about him, really, that that I'm aware of, um, and so there, there's a little bit of of uh, you know, we've we've come to accept, um, as Sam said, that subjective data are still data, and that um, even things like you know, team chemistry is was always one of the big um, whipping boys. Uh, there was always the argument that that teams that you know like each other win more, and you know the, the outside was always well. There's no data, but um, you know, I think a lot of us have come to accept that even without data, there there are 
reasons to believe that team chemistry might actually matter. And some of that is through the work of, of people like Russell Carlton, um, who is both uh, an incredible baseball analyst and someone with a PhD in, I don't even know, um, psychiatry, psychology, something along those lines, um, neuroscience, who knows. Um, but who, um, something with the brain, how about that? Um, but so, so we, we've sort of come to accept that, but but I think uh, the, the teams kind of – I don't want to use the word co-opting because it sounds negative. But the teams uh, bringing in that kind of thinking, uh, I think, uh, made it hard to, to, to argue that there's still two sides. Hmm. I mean the, the question, of course, then becomes why did they, did they bring uh, you guys in? I mean it would seem the answer is, is that you were able to, to show that you could provide competitive advantage. Is that, is that sort of all it comes down to is uh, they, they want to win and you guys convinced them you could, you could help them win? And our guys work for very cheap as well. That helps. Right. Yeah, one of, one of the things that um, you know, relatively recent analysis has shown is, is how much it costs um, to produce a win on the field um, by just by paying players on the free agent market. And, you know, it, it's such a, a tiny fraction of that amount to employ somebody who, you know, grew up from, from the age of, of five, just loving baseball and, um, you know, there's sort of like it's become clear that there's kind of a baseball premium that baseball teams can pay people, uh, you know, probably a quarter, <laughs> maybe just just throwing a number out there of what they would get if they were working for IBM um, or some other you know research organization where they were putting those skills to use because baseball just has that kind of pull. Um, so. You know, it's very cheap for baseball teams to, to, to try it out and employ a person or two and to take their advice for whatever they think it's worth. Um, but apparently it's been worth quite a bit because these people have stayed on. Um, I don't know any teams. I don't I can't think of any teams that have, you know, hired someone didn't really like it, fired them and just kind of moved on with their lives and went back to the old ways. Everybody has, um, you know, they've, they've gone more or less all in with this stuff. Hmm. Yeah. So. Well, the Mariners yeah, are the example right. that Jason was, was looking for. Right. Yeah. That's a good point. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think though that also, I think there's just an appreciation that there are, everybody has questions about baseball. I mean, the, the oldest old school guy has questions about baseball and you just realize that there are some questions that can't be answered, um, you know, by your coaches or by your scouts. And in the same way that I have questions about baseball that can't be answered by numbers. So I'll, uh, when I'm lucky enough to, I'll talk to a, you know, a minor league field coordinator or something. And, and I'm amazed by, by what he's able to teach me about baseball. So there's just, I mean, unless you're really aggressively stubborn, um, there's an appreciation that it's better to have more information than less. If you trust yourself to filter through it um, and use it, use it right. Um, why wouldn't you want to have it? And, and I mean, it became something of an arms race to um, have more nerds, um, and that creates a sort of momentum because nobody wants to be left behind in in any in any in any part of the game, even if it's one that you don't naturally uh, tend toward. It's probably worth uh, for a moment just going over those economics. Uh, you mentioned that there uh, through your research, you've come up with a price per win. So if you're going to uh, pay players, how much you have to uh, spend in order to have a team that's likely to win one more game? Uh, what is that number? Roughly. That's 
that that's a, that's a hard question these days. There there has come to be in the last couple of months a significant amount of controversy over the methods that people are using and and the pools of players and things like that. But but it's something in the range anywhere from five to eight million um, dollars per win. I think is unless unless Sam wants to cast some doubt on that upper range. Um, no. That seems reasonable. For, for this discussion, it probably suffices to say it's it's uh, tremendously more uh, than the team of nerds make. And that, that sort of, uh, you know, if the player can earn you one, but maybe the, the research can, can find another way to earn that win, it makes all the sense in the world to uh, uh, find people who can do that work for you. Um, let, let's talk a, a little bit about uh, about writing in terms of uh, style. You guys mentioned uh, in the preface again uh, that you consider yourself second-generation uh, BPers, second-generation baseball prospectus people, uh, which means, I take it, that you grew up on these books. Uh, how does that inform the approach that you took to editing this book, the, the kinds of writing that you were looking for? Um, how does that sort of bring you to uh, to want to keep certain things from the past and, and make changes moving forward also? Um, well, for one thing that we wanted to do is, is bring back some of the things that had gotten, I would say, um, smoothed, smoothed down over the years that there was, there was a free form element to some of the, to some of the comments and to some of the chapters that I think kind of got lost because everybody, uh, got a little bit safer in their writing, and we fondly remember some of those chapters that were, um, you know, th- th- you got the sense that there wasn't even really an editor. There was. There was a great editor. There was always a great editor. But you almost got the sense that the writers were, were, were more confident that they could write however they wanted, and they didn't really have to worry about the brand uh, because the brand wasn't much of anything at the time. So you would see... Uh, and this is a small, this is a, I mean, this is a style, style thing more than, you know, anything significant, but you'd see a 20 word player comment next to a 450 word player comment. And 10 years later though, when we were looking at it, every single comment was between 120 and 140 words. So we just wanted to sort of break up the monotony of it. Um, and in a bigger way, the same thing, uh, with the essays, the essays used to really be the author's chance to expand on a topic um, in any way they wanted. And so if you were writing about um, the Giants, you could write um, about as small or as large a detail about the Giants, and that detail could be as uh, tightly connected to it or tangentially related to the Giants as you wanted it to be. And so you would see writers really just using that as an outlet for great writing and great thought. And over the years, it became much more that you would write specifically about the team, that you would write about how they did last year, how they're going to do this year, and, you know, what they're going to do the year after that. And so um, we wanted, we knew that, that that's kind of hard to read through six or 700 pages of that. Um, and so our sense was that because of that, the book was probably being used more as a reference guide than as a book that you would read from page one to page 700 as we used to do it. Um, so we wanted to bring that back. We wanted it to be a book that you would pick up and read all the way through instead of for, you know, 10 minutes while your, while your tea is boiling. Um, but as far as the, uh, as far as the style, um, there was always a kind of rhythm to a good comment that you could appreciate that you could pick up on. Uh, there was a, there was a punchline in a particular place 
always. There was always something about, I mean, that's the amazing thing about these cons is that there's 2,000 player comments for 2,000 players. And yet each one is, when it's done right, is unique. It, you remember that comment. It's not simply, you know, this guy throws this many miles per hour and, you know, hit 240 with, you know, in, in August. It's not, it's not just a collection of stats. There's a way of finding the thing in the player that makes him unique, that makes him different than the other Venezuelan shortstop in the system. And uh, we wanted to recover that rhythm. I think we, um, I think we almost, almost entirely picked people who had experience reading the books of that era um, because that's a rhythm that you sort of internalize after reading it for a few years. And we, we really wanted to bring it back. And I, I think we did. No, I, I think uh, one yeah. of the, sorry, if I can interrupt, no, please, I, uh, please. I, I think one of the, one of the challenges was figuring out what to, and it's one of the challenges in sort of baseball writing, internet baseball writing, I think in particular in, uh, in particular in general, um, is, is where does the liveliness come from when you're not spending every word um, yelling at a manager or a general manager? I, I think a lot of those old comments, um, you know, the, you'd learn something about the player and then you would learn something about how um, that player was overpaid or underappreciated or used wrong by the manager or something along those lines. You know, that, that a, lot, a lot of the humor um, would come from that and, and – um, um, there's the, there's the question of, of how to be uh, funny without when, when you don't really have an enemy um, and, and when you don't really feel like tearing down the player. I, I think nobody really enjoys reading comments about how awful baseball players are because they're not awful. Um, every every player in this book is an amazing baseball player, and so even when they're awful relative to their peers, it's not really fun um, to read about how they can't hit or they can't throw or whatever it is they can't do. So so looking for that, that um, w- what's unique in them, but also what's funny in them. And I, and I think kind of the, the way the internet has turned the way uh, certain sections of Twitter about baseball have turned um, to, to a certain absurdism uh, has, has really influenced me at least. And, and I think Sam to a degree, um, I, you know, j- just, just the ridiculousness of baseball players, but in, in a, in a harmless uh, fun uh, way. And, and I'd like to think that we, tr- you know, tried to incorporate some of that into the, as the, the humor and liveliness element of, in this year's book. Uh, I hate to put you on the spot, but, it, but of course it's intriguing to the listener. Uh, mm-hmm. Do you have some examples of, of sort of uh, embracing some of that absurdity or, or finding uh, less mean ways to be funny that you, you think you've uh, succeeded in this book? Uh, well, I mean, you're put, you hate to put us on the spot and yet you're putting us on the spot. <laughs> uh, I actually love to put you on the spot. Sam. My, my fit. I've, I've, I've mentioned this before, but my favorite comment in the book, and I don't think it's anybody else's, but my favorite comment in the book is about some double a pitcher, uh, who missed the year with shoulder surgery and he's battled shoulder injuries his whole career. And, but he's still young. He's like 21. He's, he was young for his level. And so the, the comment was something like, um, you know, this guy missed another year for shoulder surgery. At 21, time is still on his side, figuratively. 
but a bad shoulder is still on his side, literally. Mm. <laughs> um, and so I don't even really know why I like that so much, <laughs> except I just think that that's a, a the, just this, I don't know. I, I can't, I, I refuse to, I actually refuse to, to analyze why I like that. That's, that's pr- probably for the best. There's a Ryan. There's a comment about a player named Ryan Terrio who um, is would basically no, Mike like Fontenot. Mike Fontenot. Oh, is Mike Fontenot? Oh, I get the Cajuns mixed up. <laughs> um, Mike Fontenot, who who retired. Am I right, Sam? I uh, either forcibly or voluntarily. Yeah, but but we didn't know that at the time, and, and so that that I think unfortunately won't come through in the book how genius this is. But the entire Mike Fontenot comment reads: Mike Fontenot just wants to celebrate and live his life, <laughs> and and that's you know, and so it's a pop culture reference, and it's you know this very brief summation of the player. It doesn't necessarily make sense, um, but it's funny, and you know that that um, kind of. You know, it's lively. It, you know, the other thing is that most of the people reading the book are giant baseball nerds already. Uh, we, we have kind of that advantage of not necessarily having to teach beginners. Um, although ideally, you know, beginners will still read the book because I think we can teach beginners. Um, the, you know, the certain comments, we don't really worry too much um, if a few of the comments in the book are are you know, really rely on a lot of knowledge about the game. And I think that Fontenot one is one of them. Um, probably a significant portion of the audience knows who Fontenot is, doesn't need to hear anything else about him, and is just going to be amused by that joke. Um, so that, that's that's the one that I would go to. Uh, thank you. Um, for the first time ever, this book has uh, bylines on the chapters, which I think is something that uh, readers, or many readers, have, have probably had an interest in. Uh, and so, you know, before it was sort of everything was written by an editorial staff or an editorial team. It was attributed to the book uh, writ large. Uh, and now you have specific authors on each chapter. Uh, and, you know, you can see how the different authors are putting in different approaches. What was the decision behind that? And what do you think has been the result of, of for the first time ever, offering those bylines? Well, one of the things that we wanted to do was get a lot of these guys to write for us, guys being gender neutral, uh, men and women, wonderful writers, all of them. Um, and they're, uh, they're people who wouldn't write without a byline. They're people who are well-known. Um, traditionally, in the past, it's been basically just the staff has, has knocked these essays out, and uh, you might have one person writing four of them. Um, but it's all staff. And so when you start talking about asking the, you know, the beat writer for the Red Sox to write about the Red Sox, well, he's, he needs a byline. He's going to want a byline. It, it wouldn't make sense to, to utilize his, uh, you know, his expertise and then not, you know, put a byline on it. So it, once we decided that we were going to bring in a lot of people from outside the organization, it kind of, wasn't really an option to not have the byline, but uh, we might have decided on the byline first. I, I, I don't remember. Regardless, we did we did like the idea that you would get a different kind of writing when people know that their name is going to be on it, that you'd get less of the company-type writing, the sort of uh, house-style type of writing that we had gotten bored of, and more of the personal style that drew us to these writers in the first place. And I also just think that it's, it's a, it's a richer writing experience generally when you know who's, who's writing it. You, it adds an extra layer of meaning. If you know that writer, particularly if you know his, his experience, if you know some of his perspective and his history of writing and what he thinks about the game, 
um, it adds a layer of meaning if you can kind of run it through that filter. So um, it's it seemed kind of inevitable that we would go this direction. Last year, I think, was the first year that we um, really removed the sort of this uh, half-serious ban on revealing who had written what. Last year, everything was still uh, unbylined, but like on a podcast that the site does, we had the authors on to talk about the chapters, so they were acknowledging you know, who had written what. So uh, once we had kind of done that, it didn't make sense to not give people the credit. I, and I think, I, to be honest, I think people write better when they know they're going to get credit. And uh, and can you talk a little bit about the, the recruiting of the staff? What was the what was that process like? Uh, especially said going outside the organization, uh, which is not something you've done in the past. Well, we um, we, we we asked people, and they said yes. Yeah, <laughs> we were we were surprised. Actually, we both. Jason and I are loath to ask for favors, and I was very nervous about asking anybody. I hate to be told no for anything, and we were shocked. Not one person said no. One person backed out after for uh, kind of logistical reasons with his job, but uh, nobody said no. So we we got sort of a deeper appreciation for what the book means to people when we went through that process. And of course, I won't ask you to uh, pick your favorite uh, pick your favorite essays. I, I will note mine, uh, and the, it is really great for for those of you who uh, have any interest at all in baseball uh, and uh, are are looking for something to read. It's not just statistics, as I think Jason and Sam have made clear. Uh, Ken Aronson wrote a, a wonderful introduction to the Oakland A's chapter, which is written in this sort of uh, aphoristic style. It's uh, uh, a little bit like the author David Shields, a little bit like Marcus Aurelius's Meditations. Uh, he sort of moves in and out of, of topics, um, you know, biographical to statistical to psychological. Uh, and it really is a very rich reading experience. And, and uh, you know, when you pick this book up, you do get this, this variety of perspectives. Uh, are there any particular moments from the book that you'd like to, to point out uh, as, we, as we wrap up our, our discussion here, Sam or Jason? Uh, you mean within the text or within the production? You know, either. <laughs> either. It's, uh, it's, it's late over here. Uh, uh, probably not. <laughs> I don't know. The, the thing is, is just kind of a blur uh, at this point. We spent like three or four months editing it, and it was the first time we'd edited it. And so we were terrified that it wasn't going to come together uh, at all and that we were going to be the first ones ever to do it totally wrong. And um, at this point, we still haven't seen it. Uh, most people have mm-hmm. uh, because Amazon shipped it so wonderfully early this year. But ours are coming from a different direction. And so neither of us has actually seen the, the book. And so there's still probably a part of us that doesn't want to jinx anything <laughs> by spiking the, the football. Like, I'll open it up, skim for that one horrible typo that we made 5,000 times uh, before I start <laughs> talking about how great the process was. <laughs> how about you, Jason? Uh, well, Sam talked about process, so so I would just note that there are a couple of um, uh, three actually freestanding essays um, that aren't connected to a team, aren't connected to any players. Uh, Dan Brooks, Grant Brisby, and Russell Carlton wrote those three, and they're three very different essays about very different things, um, but all are just unspeakably brilliant. <laughs> um, that and, and I think we were um, very lucky to to get them and to and to have 
have them and to have them in the book. Um, I, that is another thing that I think the book got away from. Uh, you know, it, it, I think um, sometimes in uh, some of the earlier books, there would be a really significant, important piece of research um, that would be in the book. Um, and at, at some point the book became much more just the players and the teams and the players and teams and the players and the teams. And, uh, I think those, the, we call them fungos. Um, I think those essays are a, a real, a very strong addition to the book. Um, and I would encourage people to read them first if you want to, or last or in between. All right. Well, thank you so much for, for being so generous with your time. Um, and I want to urge uh, our listeners to, to click on the link on the New Books Network uh, page, which will take you through to Amazon.com, uh, where you should pick up your copy of this year's Baseball Prospectus Annual. Uh, Sam and Jason, thanks so much for, for this great conversation. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. <laughs>